Well, thank you, Arnold, for kicking us off there. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Take your copy of God's Word and let's turn to 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 1 as we begin our summertime study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. You follow along as I read verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Well, you are quite familiar with the idea or the concept that context matters. Context matters. Context can be defined as the available information that helps shape or form the setting or scene of an event. Context actually comes from the Latin word, which means to weave together. So context is the weaving together of bits and pieces of information to form a a scene or a setting. And when things are taken out of context, it's actually difficult to grasp uh, what is happening in that setting or in that scene. Take, for example, these out-of-context pictures that I pulled from the internet, courtesy of Google. Based on the picture alone, you will sort of be left scratching your head because the context makes absolutely no sense. I don't know if this is real or not, but I I need to know the context here. This one's one of my favorites. A wet floor sign floating on top of a swimming pool. Here's bounce houses at a cemetery. I I really don't think that picture's real. That's, That's Photoshopped. I don't know if you'll find this one in your high school annual. Here's another one for you. It's a large animal. We were down at ICR yesterday. My family was down at ICR. We didn't see that, but we saw a large T-Rex in its proper environment. Here's one at the local Walmart. Bless his heart. Scarred for life. And... Here's, here's one more. We'll be doing this in the parking lot after uh, the service. That's a windshield wiper rubbing on jelly for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich there. Yeah. That's wild. So you see, when the context is distorted, like these pictures prove to us, when context isn't clear, it's nearly impossible to grasp what is actually going on in a setting or a scene. The same, as you know, can be true when studying Scripture. Without the proper context for any book, chapter, or verse, the true meaning becomes all the more difficult to comprehend and grasp. 
Well, today, as we begin our study of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to give thought to this letter in its proper context. In fact, uh, we will develop three categories of context so that we will understand the larger story that lies behind 1 Thessalonians as we begin our study. So let's begin looking at these three categories of context. The first one is a New Testament context, a New Testament context. Now, as you already know, and this needs no explanation, but we are a long way from Genesis, a long way from Genesis. In fact, we're talking 1,800 years away based on the death of Joseph, which was roughly around 1805 BC and the birth of Christ which was somewhere between six to four BC. So we've jumped forward 1800 years in in the biblical narrative in the story of redemption from Genesis to uh, 1 Thessalonians. So Christ was most likely born anywhere between six to four BC, six to four BC. The dating of, per, dating of the birth of Christ really hinges on two chapters, and you can jot these down in your notes and review them this week. But Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2 are the primary chapters that help us date the birth of Christ between 6 and 4 B.C. So after examining that biblical data, Luke 2, Matthew 2, in conjunction with several archaeological discoveries and with much scholarly work Over the last 1,000 years, the birth of Christ is best dated between 6 and 4 B.C. Now, before the B.C. A.D. timetable was put together, I think in the 5th and 6th century, they didn't have the available or accurate enough information to actually date when Christ was born. Since that time, we've had major archaeological discoveries which have allowed us to be more accurate in our dating of Christ, which was probably between 6 and 4 B.C. Again, you can look into that a little more this week. So if you begin with that general time frame, and then you consider Luke chapter 3 and several political leaders that Luke mentions by name at the start of Jesus' public ministry and his baptism, that takes us to about A.D. 27 or A.D. 30. Now, according to John's Gospel, Beginning in chapter 2 and running all the way to chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 10, you've got Jesus clearing out the temple twice, which covers, in that chapter 1 to chapter 10 time frame, which covers three years, which brings us to A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. So Christ being born between 6 and 4 B.C., His public ministry, according to Luke 3, probably started around AD 27 or 30, and then Christ's crucifixion, or the end of his public ministry, would then place us around AD 30 or AD 33. Of course, his resurrection occurs three days later, and then according to Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Christ was on the earth for 40 years after his resurrection appearing to certain people. Ten days later brings us to Acts chapter 2 on the 50th day after Christ's resurrection and the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and the early church was born. Again, that's either A.D. 30 or 33, depending on how you date 
uh, the birth of Christ. But the reason that is important is because not many years later, a few years later, maybe anywhere from about two or three years after the birth of the church, Saul, or better known as the Apostle Paul, was converted on the road to Damascus. So that sort of lays a brief New Testament context where we are in the timeline of events as it relates to our study in Genesis to the conversion of Paul. That brings us to the uh, second primary context, and that is a Pauline context, a Pauline context. So this is where we'll actually spend a bulk of our time this morning looking at Paul as it relates to the New Testament and how he ultimately comes to interact with the Thessalonians, thus giving us two letters that he wrote to them. So we'll look at a Pauline context, and when we do this, we're going to look at seven different aspects of Paul's life. Seven different aspects of Paul's life, and I think that this sort of brief overview of Paul's life will set the stage perfectly for our study this summer. Let's look at the first aspect, and that would be a Jewish background. Let's learn a little bit about Paul's Jewish background. Now, most of this information probably isn't new to your ears, but I think it'll be helpful to set Paul in our context, in his context, that New Testament context, kicking us off here with his Jewish background. According to Acts 22.3, Paul was born in the Greco-Roman city of Tarsus in Cilicia. According to Philippians 3, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? So he's got those Genesis roots. So not only was he Jewish, and it's clear from Philippians 3, by his own admission, by his own autobiography, but he also had Roman citizenship, which was crucial for his apostolic ministry in the first century. He was given all the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen, yet at the same time, by blood, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to Acts 5.34 and Acts 22.3, we're told that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the famous rabbis of the first century, who was essentially the teacher of Israel alongside Nicodemus in John 3. But Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel for several years, which means Paul would have spoken Hebrew he would have spoken Aramaic, and he would have spoken Greek. We know from his own account that he was a Pharisee, according to Philippians 3. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, Pharisee simply means a separated one. And he was most likely following in the steps of his father. So that Pharisaic sort of tradition that had been built before the time of Christ had been infused into Paul's family and then passed down to him during his generation. That meant that he no doubt was trained heavily in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, you know this, as you read through Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, he often either quotes directly from the Old Testament or he alludes back to it. So he was embedded in that world. So his Jewish and his Greek sort of, uh, his person uh, plays a vital role all throughout his ministry for several decades 
as he proclaims Christ. Uh, The next aspect of this context that we can look at is Paul's persecution of the church. Paul's persecution of the church. The first time that the Apostle Paul enters the biblical narrative is in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. So turn there with me, Acts chapter 7. As you know, Acts 7 records Stephen, records his interaction with the Jewish Sanhedrin in which he presents a biblical theology of the story of redemption from the Old Testament and he shows the fact that that story ultimately culminates in the person and work in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all of Acts Seven, you're familiar with that. You know that that did not go over well with the crowds. Not only did it not go over well with the crowds, but even more so the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, they were raging furious. If you look at verse 54, we're told the Sanhedrin were cut to the heart, they were cut to the quick. Verse 54 tells us that they gnashed their teeth at what Stephen had been proclaiming. Verse 57, they ran at him. They cast him out of the city, verse 58. And then verse 58 tells us that they stoned him to death. Now that stoning could have looked like a a number of different ways. Uh, That could have been several small stones thrown at him uh, in uh, sort of a a pit-like scene. Or there's archaeological discoveries that tell us that stoning in the ancient world uh, could have played out by pushing someone off of a small cliff and then trying to drop giant boulders on them. Those were really the two means of stoning. Uh, That's sort of built off when the crowds tried to throw Jesus off of a cliff in Luke chapter 4. The idea behind that would be to throw a person off the cliff and drop a giant boulder on them. That's possibly what happened uh, to Stephen here. Notice they cast him out of the city, which would have taken us to a place. Maybe he was thrown off a small cliff, but then he was stoned to death. Now, why do we need to see this? Because look at verse 58. Because a man by the name of Saul, that's his Hebrew name, Saul, was there presiding over all of the events. So the first time Paul is presented in Acts, he's really presented as the worst character in the narrative. Of course, he was there at Stephen's death presiding over everything, but Luke, as he writes Acts, he's really trying to paint in our minds how bad Paul or Saul really was. If you look over at chapter 8, verse 1, we're told here that Saul he consented to Stephen's death. He was completely on board. If you go down to verse 3, we're told that he made havoc of the church He entered into homes, he took men and women, and he committed them to prison. Again, in in the Acts narrative, and you you can read prior to this, no one of this disgust has been uh, mentioned before. No one has been framed this way except for Paul. Now, Luke's recording of Paul or Saul and his ungodly behavior, and this is critical, The way that Luke portrays Saul is the exact same way that Saul portrays himself. 
You know, some critics want to say that Luke was just extremely hard on Paul and his demeanor in life before Christ. But that's just not true once you compare Luke's account and his description of Paul, and then you compare Paul's own account. In fact, I pulled together just a couple references for you. Paul writing in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, notice that he says that he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That's coming from Paul's own hand. That's coming from Paul's own lips. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, look, I should be counted as the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. So both Luke, as he develops Acts, and Paul, as he gives us his autobiography at different points in his 13 letters, they both tell us that he was the worst. He was anti-Christ. He was anti-gospel. He was anti-the church. So much so that he repeatedly persecuted the people of God, entering into home after home after home. And just so we understand that context, in the first century, there weren't church buildings. That really wasn't until the third and fourth centuries. Where were churches meeting? They were were meeting at home. So Paul, he would go into synagogues and take anyone that was a God-fearer and had believed in Christ, and he would take them to prison. And then he would enter into every home that he could possibly find where he knew God's people were meeting, and he would go in there, and he would take them out, men and women, and put them in prison. That's the persecution that he wreaked on the church. But that brings us to the next aspect of Paul's life, and that is his conversion to Christ. His conversion uh, to Christ. In a moment's time, such hatred for God, such hatred for Christ and the church and God's people radically changed. You can turn over one page to Acts 9 and you'll see the conversion account. The Acts narrative comes back to Saul as he's making his way to Damascus to persecute those of the way, to persecute Christians. Notice verse 1. It says that he is breathing threats and murder against Christ's people. The language there is actually the same type of language that's used of describing pigs, snorting. The idea is that it's literally affecting his physical body, wanting to persecute the church so badly. Verse 2 tells us that he requests letters from the high priest in the Sanhedrin, letters that would give him authority to go from synagogue to synagogue or from house to house to persecute people, to persecute believers. So Saul leaves Jerusalem and he heads towards Damascus. By the way, this would have been a 135-mile journey. I mean, Paul was committed, right? I mean, this, this guy is going 135 miles to throw people in prison. But notice verse 3, he's halted in his tracks near Damascus, and he's halted by none other than the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this visit in 1 Corinthians 15. But Luke records that a bright light shone and Saul falls to the ground and the Lord Jesus Christ interacts with him and instructs him to go to Damascus, to continue going to Damascus, but to meet up with a man by the name of Ananias. So Paul is radically changed. 
in a couple senses here. One, he's converted to Christ, but he's also blinded for three days. And then he eventually makes his way to Damascus and he meets with Ananias. Go down to verse 15. So in Acts 9, 15, and 16, Christ tells Paul via Ananias that he is a chosen vessel and that he is now an apostle to the Gentiles. Those two verses are absolutely critical. You can bracket them in if you want in your Bible. This is here when we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has appointed Paul to apostleship. He didn't appoint himself. The other apostles didn't appoint Saul. Christ himself has appointed him as a chosen one, as an apostle. Which, by the way, this helps Paul meet the credentials for a New Testament apostle, which would have been chosen and appointed by Christ, which would have also included seeing the resurrected Christ, and according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, being able to perform signs and wonders and miracles. So really, in a moment's time, Paul goes from a persecutor to a believer. He goes from one that ultimately hated the apostles to becoming an apostle. Notice here in verse 19, Paul's sight is restored. He's baptized and he's immersed in water. Verse 19, now for several days in Damascus, he spends it there with the disciples. Not necessarily the 12, but those who had been converted to Christ. Now we won't have time to look at this, but you can do some more research on this if you want. Notice here in the Acts narrative that Paul's name, he's referred to as Saul. That's his Hebrew name. And in the early years of his ministry, his focus was on going into the synagogues. But as the Acts narrative continues to unfold, and as Saul now is commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, the Acts narrative begins to refer to him as Paul. So you see that subtle shift. There isn't an explicit verse that says, whoa, Paul's name changed. You just see that sort of pour out in the narrative as he goes from being an apostle to the Jews to an apostle to, to the Gentiles here. You, you, see that, you see that unfold. Well, the next aspect of Paul's ministry is his Christ-centered ministry. His Christ-centered ministry. If you notice down in verse 20 that Saul was in the synagogues preaching Christ I mean, that is a radical shift. That is a complete 180. He used to go into the synagogues carrying letters of authority from the Sanhedrin to take people out. Now he's going into those very synagogues and he's preaching and proclaiming Christ. Notice the exclusivity of his message, by the way. Look in verse 22. This is the only time you'll see this in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul was preaching Christ as the Son of God. That's the only time. Now, that doesn't mean that the apostles weren't preaching Christ as the Son of God, but Luke is withholding that title for Christ all the way up until this point to tell us that Paul has been converted because he truly understands the gospel message, that Christ is the Son of God. By the way, this comes out in 1 Thessalonians in verse 10. Of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's amazing to see the change and the transformation from Paul. 
So although Paul was skilled in the Old Testament scripture and the disciples at Damascus had most likely helped him further his understanding of Christ and the gospel, he needed a divine teacher because he was on a divine mission. And that takes us to the next aspect of this Pauline context. And that is the years following his conversion. The years following Paul's conversion. So according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, after the situation in Damascus, after Acts chapter 9, we are told that Paul went to Arabia in Nebadian kingdom. In fact, we are told that Paul departed to Arabia, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, that he departed to Arabia for three years. What did he do in those three years? Well, according to Galatians 1, for those three years, Galatians 1.12 tells us that he essentially sat at the feet of Christ and Christ himself taught Paul theology and doctrine. Again, you'll find that in Galatians 1.12 and Galatians 1.15 through 17. Paul did not learn his theology and doctrine from the apostles. He did not depend on flesh and blood. He was taught by Christ for three years. So after those three years in Arabia, Paul makes short visits to Damascus and Jerusalem. He interacts with Barnabas and the apostles. And this is around AD 35-ish to sort of give us our timeline here. And then he returns to Tarsus. Now it's interesting. So as Paul goes from Arabia with Christ for three years to Damascus and then to Jerusalem and then he returns home to Tarsus, the biblical narrative is almost silent for the next 10 years of Paul's life. There's not a lot of biblical data on that time period. So now we need to jump forward to around A.D. 45 and A.D. 46 because it was during that time that one of Paul's companions from 10 years prior, a man by the name of Barnabas, was desperately in need of assistance in Antioch because of church growth. So Barnabas travels to Tarsus and he goes to Tarsus to find one man. And that's our guy, the Apostle Paul. So he begs and he pleads and persuades Paul to come with him. Acts 11 records that event. And Paul agrees. So that's the early years after Paul's conversion, sort of a 13-year period, three years in Arabia. The text is essentially silent for the next 10 years. Barnabas goes to Tarsus. Barnabas says, Paul, I need you. I need you. And Paul agrees. So after those early years is now when we begin to get in Paul's official missionary journeys. And that's the next aspect of Paul's life. His first missionary journey. 
So around AD 46, around AD 47, Paul began his first official missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas set sail for Cyprus, then Salamis, which was about an 80-mile journey. They then sailed 170 miles to Pamphylia, and it was there that John Mark deserted them, Acts 13. They later went up to Pisidia and then to Phrygia and stayed there for several Sabbaths. And then next, they traveled 50 miles southeast to Iconium and then 60 miles to Derby. And as you can see from the map up here, to some degree you can see it, they traveled for another, or eventually sailed from Pamphylia back to Antioch. All in all, this first missionary journey was about two years. Two years, Paul and Barnabas journeying across the ancient world, sharing the gospel. Several hundred miles uh, that they were able to accrue on their Fitbits there. Well, that takes us to Paul's second missionary journey, and here's where we finally begin to be attached with the Thessalonians. Paul's second missionary journey. So at some point in A.D. 50, Paul began his second missionary journey. But because of their disagreement over Mark, who had deserted them at some point, Paul and Barnabas didn't journey on this journey together. Rather, Paul took Silas or Silvanus that we see in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Now turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. Turn to Acts 16. So now you see sort of the key players coming together as it relates to the Thessalonians. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He now takes Silas with him. Now, of course, in Acts 16, there's too many details to recount, but it is, noth- it is worth noting that as Paul begins this journey, he takes Silas with him, that not only is Paul fervently taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8, that's a fulfillment of that, But what I want us to see here is that at the same time, God is providentially and even supernaturally taking Paul and Silas to specific locations. Notice verse 6. It says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's interesting here. So as Paul begins his second journey, he intends, at least what we can gather from the context here, uh, to travel to Asia. But for whatever reason, and it's hard to ascertain why, the Holy Spirit essentially stops them and forbids them from going. Again, you see providence at work. That's not where God wanted them to be. Look at verse 9. Not only do we see uh, providence playing out there in verse 6, but we even see supernatural intervention. Verse 9 records a vision that Paul had to go to Macedonia. 
Now that is very important. It's a critical detail because Thessalonica is located in Macedonia. So as chapter 16 comes to a conclusion, because Paul was forbidden to go one way, a door was opened for Paul to found the Philippian church. That's Acts chapter 16. You can see that by just glancing your eyes over the text. So Paul founds the Philippian church, and that would have been most likely in Lydia's home there in verses 11 through 15. You know how the story goes. They preach the gospel and are ultimately thrown in the Philippian jail. Of course, they are released. And you know the story in verses 25 through 34. But then it is that point in which they depart, Paul and Silas, they depart from Philippi and they make their way 68 miles to Thessalonica. Now, of course, there's more we could say about Paul's life. 13 more chapters, by the way, in the book of Acts. I mean, we're just scratching the surface in terms of Acts content as it relates to Paul. But that's the Pauline context. So we've oriented ourselves where we're at in the New Testament. We've sort of seen as a bird's eye view of how Paul came to be interacting with the Thessalonians. Let's look at our third and final context. And that would be a Thessalonian context. And there's four aspects of this context that I want us to see here as we lay the groundwork for our study this summer. So let's first off look at the history of Thessalonica. The history. Well, Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC. That's some 360 years before Paul arrived there. The city was named after Cassander, the king of Macedonia, after his wife. And she was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Thessalonica's strategic location on the Aegean Sea made it a chief port in all of Macedonia. So when, when you think about how God is providentially guiding Paul and Silas there, it's to a strategic location off of the Aegean Sea. It is also located on the Via Ignatia, which was the main land route that essentially went from Asia Minor to Rome. So all of the sort of key economic movements in the ancient world, all of the military movements in the ancient world would hop on the Via Ignatia on which Thessalonica rested. So Thessalonica was the largest and most important city in Macedonia during Roman times. In 42 BC, and this is gonna be very helpful for the advancement of the gospel, but in 42 BC, it was made a free city. In other words, it had local autonomy, freedom from military occupation, and it did not become a Roman colony. Why was that important? Because it allowed Thessalonica to become cosmopolitan. It was a melting pot. People from all over the world would come there. Greek culture, Latin culture, Jewish culture. God was strategically working behind the scenes, being, bringing people from all over to Thessalonica so they could interact with Paul and Silas and the gospel could go forth. 
Of course, Acts 1.8 is heavily reliant upon the apostles taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But what would happen is that the apostles would do that, and then it would be the people that had traveled in from all over the world who would then have the gospel and then spread it. But with the influx of peoples and, and cultures came several pagan religions, several pagan cults. Dionysus, the god of nature and wine, Serapis, the composite god of the underworld and of the skies, and Cabarrus, the ethnic god, or the god of earth and soil. So Paul's message of Jesus Christ and him crucified would be a direct attack on all of the cults and all of the religions and all of the pagan idolatry that had been brought into Thessalonica because of the cultures that had landed there. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, you'll recognize that verse, is that Paul was basically highlighting the fact that they had turned away from what? Idols. They had turned away from idols. So Paul and Silas, under the providential hand of God, strategically make their way to Thessalonica. They begin preaching the gospel, and people from all sorts of pagan cults and idolatrous systems began bowing the knee to Christ. We also need to look at Paul's preaching. What did Paul do when he made it to Thessalonica? What did Paul do when he made it to Thessalonica? Well, as you know from Acts, he went straight to the synagogues. This is how his ministry started. This is how it began. He went straight to the synagogues. Look at Acts 17. Now when they, Paul and Silas, had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So as was Paul's custom after conversion, Acts 9 we see here that Paul continued to engage the Jewish community in the synagogues. And notice where he engaged with them from. The Old Testament. Notice here in Thessalonica, for three consecutive Sabbaths, he went into the synagogue, and we are told here that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, that word reasoned, uh, the, the Greek word there is where we get our English word logic. He engaged with them. He debated with them. He argued with them. He instructed them, and he did so from uh, the Scripture. By the way, this is very reminiscent of Jesus in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, reasoning to them from the Scriptures. Luke 24, 44, and 45, where he was reasoning with the disciples and others from the Scriptures. Uh, Paul, isn't, he's not breaking the mold. He's not introducing some new formula. He's going to the pagan culture. He's going to the synagogues, and he is preaching Christ. Not only 
is he preaching Christ, but he's demonstrating from the scriptures that Christ had to die for sins and that he rose as confirmation that he actually accomplished redemption. So Paul was evangelizing the Jewish culture from the scriptures, and he also evangelized the Greek culture, or more broadly, uh, the Gentiles. The Gentiles. Notice chapter 17, verse 4. In Thessalonica, verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So not only were some of the Jews converted by Paul's preaching, here we're told that even the Greek culture, individuals, Gentiles, were persuaded from the message So they linked up with Paul and Silas. Notice the the language used here in verse four. Look at it with me. A large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading or prominent women. I mean, you can see from the early decades of Christianity that the gospel, the church, it's not limited to any one ethnicity or gender. It's for anyone who will bow the knee to Christ. And this is Paul's first visit to Thessalonica. And he's preaching Christ and people are bowing the knee. Well, not only are people bowing the knee to Christ, we're getting a few other reactions from the people in town. And that would be Paul's persecution. Paul's persecution. On the one hand, we rejoice at the fact that Paul, for three consecutive weeks, went to the Sabbath. He preached Christ. People were saved, Jew, Gentile, male and female. But this created some problems in this idolatrous culture. Verse 5, you follow along. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, Luke records for us that the unbelieving Jews were furious that so many people had embraced Paul's message. So much so that they went into the marketplace, they went into the town, and they collected wicked men to form a mob. A number of ancient sources describe idlers sitting in the marketplace And these idlers, those loitering, it was very common for them to begin to cause problems. That term wicked, you see the term wicked in verse 5, can also be translated agitators, loafers. My favorite one here is low-life rabbles. So the Jews know that they can go into the marketplace They know that there are people in the marketplace looking for trouble. You guys know those people growing up? Maybe today? Maybe it's your spouse looking for trouble? 
They go looking to grab people from the marketplace that they know will help incite a riot, a mob, and then they head towards the house of Jason, which would be a Gentile convert, and they begin looking for Paul and Silas. Notice when they arrived, Paul and Silas could not be found. Clearly, Paul and Silas knew that the message that they preached and proclaimed would cause problems. Jason and company knew it as well. So they had been hid, and the mob, the local authorities, could not find them. Notice the Jews' indictment. Look back at verse 6. These men have upset Thessalonica. No, notice it says these men have upset the world. A lot of buzz that came with the apostles. A lot of buzz that came with those who would preach Christ. It was an upsetting message. These men have upset the world. And Jason has welcomed them. Not only have they upset the world, they are preaching Christ as king, not Caesar. That's an amazing statement there in verse 7. So not only did Paul and company come into Thessalonica preaching against idols and the cults of the day, they reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was king. That's not going to go over so well, as you can see in chapter 17. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that Christians rejected Caesar as the ultimate king. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 tells us that Paul often preached about Jesus being king and establishing a kingdom. We'll see in our study of 1 Thessalonians, there are several texts that describe a future day when Christ will return and establish a kingdom. So you can see why there was a riot. <laughs> We've got to get these guys out of town. Well, they're closing down all of the, you know, the silversmiths and the goldsmiths who build and construct all of these idols. They're converting people to Christianity, this new way. And not only that, they're saying that Christ is king and not Caesar. Get these men out of here. Well, in God's providence, they left. Paul and Silas left. But they didn't leave without bringing the Thessalonican church into existence. Those three consecutive Sabbaths, and probably longer, Paul was probably there longer than just three weeks, but it was during that time that this church was born. Thessalonica was born. Notice Acts 18.1 So Paul has left, he goes to Berea, and then Acts 18.1 tells us that Paul makes his way to Corinth, and he stays there for 18 months, and it is at Corinth around A.D. 51 that he writes this first letter or this first epistle to the Thessalonians. It wasn't much longer after he left. So he gets out of town, he goes and fellowships and instructs the Bereans, 
And then he goes to Corinth and he stays in Corinth for 18 months. And it's there, looking back on his journey to Thessalonica and the people that he interacted with, that he sets down to write 1 Thessalonians. So you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And that brings us to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Look at it again with me. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So this salutation reflects Greek letters in the first centuries. And these salutations, generally speaking, uh, contain three parts. The sender's name, the addressee's, and the formal greeting. So let's look at these three parts as we wrap up our time today. So in this salutation, we first see the sender's name. Now this is a little different than what we do, right? When you know, we're writing an email, most of the time you don't put your name at the top of that. Most of the time it's at the end and, and your email signature or whatever. But in the ancient world, those who were sending the letter or writing the letter, they would put their name at the front. Here in chapter one, verse one, we see three names, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. In several of Paul's salutations, he includes other people. Now, this does not mean that they were necessarily co-authors, but what this does mean is that they were present with him in the composition of the letter and they, for the most part, had some sort of relationship with who they were sending the letter to. Uh, for example, here, I mean, Silas, he, he, he was there in Acts 17. Now, it's possible that Silvanus or Timothy, or possibly both, could have written down the words that Paul was dictating to them, an amanuensis or a secretary of some sorts. We, we see that common in the ancient world. And we've got clear biblical evidence that Paul uh, would sometimes have someone else write the letter as he dictated it to them. And oftentimes, Paul, in those cases, he would sign his name at the end of the letter. You, you know this. If you, if you read Galatians 6, I mean, Paul makes a pretty definitive statement where he says, you know, look at the large letters that I'm writing with right here. And some people think that he kind of exaggerates the idea of large letters because he could have possibly had vision problems at, at some point in, in his life. But I, I say all that to say that Paul, he would give his stamp of approval, whether he was actually writing it with his own hand, which he had done, or whether he had used an amanuensis, in this case, Silas or Timothy. Paul is the one overseeing the entire process. Now, regardless, once the document had been written and approved and then signed off by Paul, that letter would have been sent. Silas, Timothy, and others throughout Paul's letters or, or the messengers would be the ones that would take some of those letters if he was unable to hand deliver them. Now, I think Paul also includes their names as evidence of the authenticity of the document. Because, and listen to this, this is really important, because 
There was a growing problem in the first century of forgery and falsified documents by people that were espousing themselves as the apostles. In fact, turn over just a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll show you this. Paul, I mean, he admits this. This was no doubt going on. 2 Thessalonians, and it could have happened with this church, and it seems as if it did. People forging letters, claiming to be from Paul. 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 2. And Paul says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So there was some confusion that was accruing in the Thessalonian church by possibly some false letters being sent that weren't actually from Paul. So when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, and you can see it even in 2 Thessalonians, he includes certain men with him to authenticate that it was really coming from them. Now you can go back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and look at verse 1. So Paul, we've talked about uh, Silvanus or Silas is the second name mentioned here. Silvanus is probably the Latinized form of his name. He's also mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. As you saw, he played a key role in the book of Acts. Chapter 15 tells us that. We saw that in chapter uh, 16 and 17. In Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas had disagreement over Mark, it was Silas who accompanied Paul on the second missionary journey. In fact, one commentator has said this of Silas, and this is important, that he should be considered as a respected colleague of Paul, almost the equal of Paul himself. So he wasn't an apostle in that primary sense, but he had great status amongst the believers in the first century. Notice the third name that you see mentioned is Timothy. He's mentioned in all of Paul's letters except for Galatians and Ephesians. He was Paul's special assistant, a messenger to the churches. Timothy was Paul's go-to guy. Although Timothy wasn't an apostle, he was also viewed as having similar authority. He was a powerful substitute when Paul wasn't around. Paul trained him in theology and doctrine. He trained Timothy how to do church. He trusted Timothy and he loved Timothy. And it's interesting, if you read 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll know, you'll notice that Timothy was trained up in the scriptures from an early age, from his grandmother and his mother. So that is who sent the letter. Next, quickly, let's look at who the letter was addressed to. It's addressed to the church of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. Of course, you're familiar with the Greek word for church, ekklesia. It simply means an assembly of gathered people. But notice what Paul adds in verse 1. It wasn't just any assembly. It wasn't a pagan assembly. It wasn't an occultish assembly. Notice it was an assembly that was directly connected to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there would have been other assemblies around town, Paul makes sure to identify which one is in view. It's not that assembly for that God, lowercase g, 
It is the church of Thessalonica, the assembly of those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Big difference. A big difference. The last part of this salutation is the formal greeting. It was common to give this type of greeting. Most common in Jewish literature was greetings and peace. But notice Paul says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you simply acknowledging that only by God's grace has redemption been found. And peace, most likely referring to the fact that all of the Thessalonians were at peace with God. So what is the theme of 1 Thessalonians? I've summed it up for us in one sentence. 1 Thessalonians, this letter was written to encourage a healthy and vibrant church not to be idle, but to press on in ministry and the Christian life until the second coming of Christ. And this summer, that exact theme, I hope that will be true for us here in this class. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your providence in taking Paul and Silas to Thessalonica to start this church. As a result, we have two letters written directly from them to the Thessalonians. And help us over the coming months to learn from them and glean the truths that you have revealed by the hand of Paul. We're grateful for Christ and the gospel, the fact that we can preach him proclaim salvation of sins, and proclaim Christ as King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.